0: Turn in your Bible to the gospel according to John, chapter two, we're in verses one through to 12. If you're just joining us for the first time, you may or may not know this, but we've been walking through the gospel of John now for about a month to a month and a half. We started in December and have just made it from chapter one to chapter two. Uh, The series that we're doing in John is really based around the three major divisions in John's gospel, If you read any of like the the theological sort of scholarly literature on it, they would say that there's three big breaks in John. There's what's called the prologue, which is chapter one. And then there's what's called the book of signs, which is the next like 10 to 12 chapters. And then there's what's called the book of glory, which follows Jesus's last week the, the Passion Week, his crucifixion, his resurrection. And so we have officially made it out of the prequel to John in chapter one and have moved from the prologue to what is called the Book of Signs. And it's called that because it focuses very intently on the miracles of Jesus. It's not to say that they don't happen before or after this section of the gospel, but that is the primary purpose of this sort of middle 10 to 12 chapters or so, is the miracles that Jesus performs and what they say about who Jesus is and what they say about what the message of Jesus is. And I realize if we're going to talk about miracles, then then we probably need to address some some questions that might come up because we live in a skeptical age. And there's this question of, I mean, can miracles even really happen at all, especially in a world that's been explained by science so well and so mechanically. Maybe you've taken like a philosophy class in college and that's left you with some some good questions about whether Miracles, in the sense that they viol- violations of the law of nature, can take place. Or maybe you've taken an intro to world religions class. Again, I think a good and helpful thing, but that leaves us with questions. So let, let me say this: when it, when we talk about miracles, the way that we normally discuss them as a suspension or a violation of the law of nature, but that actually is not a great definition of what a miracle is. That's a definition that goes back to this Scottish guy named David Hume. If you've ever been to Scotland on any of our mission teams, we walk past a statue in Edinburgh of David Hume and I always mutter uh, curses under my breath because I don't love David Hume. He's probably one of the most famous thinkers to ever come out of Scotland, but this is his big idea, is Miracles are violations of the law of nature. But if the law of nature normally works the same way all the time, why would you think that it would ever not work that way? That's a a huge simplification to it. But here's the problem with that. Maybe you think that, right? I think most people, if you ask them, what's a miracle? They'd say it's a violation of the law of nature. The Bible has no concept of the law of nature. We we have this sense that there's these laws that God set up to run the world. And then he sort of steps back and he lets them work that way. And then every once in a while, he like puts his hand in front of the law and stops it and does something really cool, like parts the Red Sea. And then he lifts his hand up and lets the law go again. But that's not actually the way the Bible talks about God's work in the world. Actually, a whole lot of things that we would chalk up to the law of nature, the Bible sees God behind. So you can look at what Jesus says in the gospels, where he says that the Lord sends rain on the just and the unjust. And if you were to say to Jesus, well, God doesn't do that. The water cycle does. He would go, and your point is? Like the the whole thing is continually held up by God. Or you can look at the Psalms, like the passage from the Psalm that we read. Um, There's a section in the Psalms where the psalmist says, God stretches out his hand and he feeds the birds of the air. Can I just tell you, nobody in Israel saw hands dropping like acorns and worms from the sky. That's not what they meant. What they meant behind the natural processes, God is at work. There's not these laws that run the world while God's busy doing something else. He doesn't just occasionally suspend the law. All of it is God's work in the world. And so it's actually probably better to talk about the way that God ordinarily works in the world, which we might call the laws of nature. And then the way that God extraordinarily works in in the world. It's not that he's breaking rules. It's that he normally operates one way. And in the miraculous, he operates another way. He normally operates in what we would call natural laws. But occasionally, occasionally he does something different. All of that to say, that was not a question anybody was asking when John wrote his gospel. And that's not really a question that anybody outside of the West is asking even now as they read John's gospel. The universal understanding of human history is, of course, miracles happen. Of course, these things can happen. The question is not, can they happen? The question is, what on earth do they mean? And that's, that's the question that, that I want us to think about as we come to our passage for the evening. Because that's the question that John means for us to ask. What does this miracle say about who Jesus is? And what I think we find is that as we read a passage like this, we're not just reading the miracles of Jesus, but the miracles of Jesus are reading us and saying something about who we are and saying something about who Jesus is. Let me read our passage for us. It'll probably be familiar to many of you and we'll jump into it. So chapter two of the gospel of John, verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to his servant, or said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some, take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from. Although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And then when the people have drunk freely, the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of his signs that Jesus did in Canaan Galilee manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So here's the scene that we have in this particular portion of John's gospel uh, that Jesus is in this town called Cana. You might remember it from last week. It's Nathaniel's hometown. It's about 12 miles from Jesus's hometown of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And Jesus is attending a wedding. And it's not just Jesus, it's Jesus and his disciples and his mom is at the wedding. You notice Joseph is not mentioned. Most people would say this is probably because Joseph has died at this point in Jesus's life. And so it's Jesus's close friends and his his mom at this wedding. But you'll notice something else that John says is that this all happens on the third day. Maybe you haven't picked up on this, but in the first chapter of John's gospel, he's actually giving you a layout of a week. Once John the Baptist shows up, he says, this happened the next day. And then the next day, this happened. And then the next day, this happened. And now he says, on the third day, this happened. If you follow sort of the Jewish reckoning of time, the calendar that would have been in place in Jesus's day, and you leave out the Sabbath because nobody's doing anything on the Sabbath, we've just seen a whole week in the life of Jesus. And now we're on Sunday. This whole event is taking place on the third day from when this started, which puts us at Sunday, this day that was gonna have profound significance by the end of Jesus's life but Jesus is at a wedding. And I don't know if you've ever considered how unbelievable that is. Like how, how surprising that is. Given everything that Christians say about who Jesus is, here, here's what I'm afraid of. Many of us, especially those of us who have grown up in church, we have this idea of Jesus that lives maybe in a coloring book or on a felt board or in like a VeggieTales video that, that he is sort of hovering through reality that 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 he's so godlike that all these stories in the gospels are like Jesus sort of coming down from the mountain to occasionally talk to people and then he goes back up the mountain and prays and and does all sorts of wild stuff but here's what we see in Jesus's first miracle he is profoundly human he's so human that he gets invited to a friend's wedding And he attends that wedding with his friends. This is 12 miles from where Jesus grew up. He's probably going to the wedding of somebody that he went to school with. He's probably going to the wedding of somebody that he grew up with, that he played games with as a kid. He's here at this wedding in the middle of all of our humanity. But there's this problem, sort of the famous problem, which is that they've run out of wine, which is why we read all these passages about wine, in case you were wondering. There's sort of some distance here though, that we need to cover. There's there's two things that might trip us up in understanding this miracle. One is that the way that weddings look in our country in our current moment in time is very different from weddings in Jesus's day. Two, we need to have a conversation about wine and what it means and why it's significant. So let's start with weddings. Many of you, if, if you have been to Scotland, might know Lewis and Susanna McCulley. Uh, is actually doing the art for our John series. So you'll be able to see some of her work. She's a phenomenal artist. So if you don't know her, you'll be able to see some of the stuff that she's working on for us. But if you don't know them, it's probably important for me to give you a little bit of background. So Lewis is from the Isle Lewis, which is in Northern Scotland, which means he will never forget his own name or the name of his hometown because he is from a city with the same name as the one that his parents chose to give him. Susanna's is from somewhere in the Midwest in the United States. I probably should have asked her. Michigan. There you go. Um, So they met through missions trip and fell in love and decided to get married. But because they're from opposite sides of the pond, they decided to throw two different wedding celebrations. I don't think they did two ceremonies, but they had two celebrations. And so when Lewis flew over, kilt and all for his wedding in the United States, he he was telling me that he had this crazy sort of cultural confusion because they got about an hour or two into the reception and people started leaving. And and I can't remember if he went to Susanna or if he just like took a step back and asked somebody, but he was like, are they mad at us? Like, did, did we do something wrong? And I think he talked to Susanna about it. And she's like, no, that's what people do. They, they sat through the ceremony. They've been here for two or three hours. And he goes, what? Like we bought all this food. Like we rented this space for 10 hours. Why are they leaving? Because in Scotland, when you throw a wedding, everybody stays until the very end, no matter how late that is. And they drink all of the alcohol (laughs) and they eat all of the food. That's just the understanding of weddings in in Scotland. And so for Lewis, he he comes into our American understanding of a wedding, which as long as as you stick around for the ceremony and shake the bride and groom's hand, then you're fine. And he's... Offended. He's like, these people are leaving when I spent all this money on this really cool party that they're not sticking around for. Weddings in Jesus' day are sort of like that, not our version, Scottish weddings, but multiplied to like the nth degree. Because there's a pretty good indication, if you look historically, that weddings in Jesus' day lasted for a full week. And it was the duty of the person sponsoring the wedding to make sure that there was food and beverages for everyone for that entire week. If you have planned a wedding and you know how much that stuff costs, it was still expensive in Jesus's day. And it was actually taken so seriously that if you ran out of food or alcohol, you could be sued by the people attending your wedding. <laughs> so Jesus is at this wedding and the bride and groom run out of alcohol. That's incredibly embarrassing for them, but also it's a legal threat. They, they could get, their family could get sued for not properly stocking the open bar in Cana of Galilee. Pretty crazy, right? So that's the first thing you need to understand about what's going on. Here's the second thing that we need to have a conversation about. Uh, it is the place of alcohol in the Bible. Now, um, Andrew Wilson, who's a, a really great theologian from England is writing a book about this issue. And, and as he was beginning to think about the book, he posted this tweet and he asked this question, what does it say about Jesus that turning water into wine is his first miracle? And, and the first response he got back was from another UK theologian. And his response was, it says that Jesus was not a Southern Baptist. And <laughs> in some ways, I think that's probably true. The reality though, is that being a Baptist church as Life is, and many of us coming from that sort of background, we have kind of a strange relationship with alcohol. And, it, and it's not unfounded. Here's the reality is that there are no doubt people in this room whose lives or the lives of their friends or families have been totally destroyed by substance abuse. You have experienced the horror of this particular substance being misused and abused and changing and distorting and corrupting relationships. And that is profoundly painful. That's something I can't begin to And it's something that that you rightly recoil in thinking about. I recognize that there's also some of us in this room who for whatever reason, choose to abstain from alcohol entirely. I would be in that category. I do not drink. And it's not because I'm not old enough to drink. (laughs) It's because I'm straight edge. Uh. (laughs) I realize that there's also people in this room who don't drink because you're not old enough to drink and you shouldn't. If you are not old enough to drink, you should not drink. You should obey the laws of the land and honor those. And then there's those of us in this room who do choose to drink. All of that to say, all of the different backgrounds that we come from, the Bible uses wine in particular to carry a whole lot of symbolic meaning. It carries a lot of weight in scripture. It means something when it comes up. So you might've noticed this in, in the passages of scripture that were read. I, I read a portion of Psalms that says that God gives us wine to gladden the heart of man. Lydia read from Amos and Isaiah, talks about the day of the Lord being a day where there's new wine, that wine will flow from the hills. And the reason for that is because in the Bible, wine is a symbol of God's blessing. It's a symbol of God's kindness. And this is a symbol of peace. It's a symbol of peace because it takes a long time to produce wine. Grapes don't grow in a day, even if they're GMOs. It takes a long time. And so if your country is under attack and you're constantly being moved from one place to another, there's not any wine. Wine only happens when a country is stable and peaceful because it takes years to produce. And so when the Bible talks about wine, It's talking about something that is meant to be seen as symbolic of God's blessing on a community of people. And ultimately it's meant to be seen as a source of joy when it's used rightly in moderation. So here's what's going on in this wedding. One, they're under a whole lot of cultural pressure because they just ran out of wine and could get sued for it. Two, the symbolic presence of God's blessing and joy has just disappeared. This wedding that is meant to be a place of joy and celebration, the joy has just dried up. And that's something that we can all relate to no matter how we relate to alcohol, because all of us at some point or another in whatever field of life, whatever part of our relationships, we felt the shine come off. We felt the paint chip. We felt this thing that we thought was going to bring us joy run dry. Maybe that's a dating relationship that you were super excited about at one point, and it's just not what it used to be. Maybe you invested a whole lot of time in a college degree that you really thought was going to make your life better, that you were going to get that perfect job, and that you were going to be Happy, healthy, and well. And the wine has dried up, metaphorically speaking. The joy is not there anymore. It can't make good on that promise. That's that's what's happening at this wedding that Jesus is at. The blessing is gone. So, what happens when the wine dries up? We're told in verse 3 that when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now let's acknowledge Jesus sounds really harsh here. And he sounds a little condescending. Uh, A couple things that I would point out. Um, In the Greek, it doesn't sound quite so condescending. It doesn't sound nearly as harsh. The English translation is doing its best to be literal, but it doesn't really capture what Jesus is getting at. The other thing that's important to recognize is that later on in John's gospel from the cross, as Jesus is dying, Mary is at the foot of his cross. And he says to her, woman, behold your son. And he sort of gestures to John, the apostle. And then he looks at John and he says, behold your mother. And the reason why Jesus says this is because he wants someone to take care of his mom after he dies. And so this is an act of, it's an act of compassion on Jesus's part. So he uses this phrase to talk to Mary in in instances of profound compassion. It doesn't seem like he means for this phrase to be harsh or condescending. And then the last thing I would say is, and I guess this is one of the fun things about the Bible. There is no other instance in contemporary Greek literature of anybody ever talking like this. So nobody really knows what Jesus means. Jesus is the only person who uses this phrase to talk to his mom. So we we can't really tell how it was used like this. But here's what's important. Mary doesn't see it as a rebuke, doesn't see it as confrontational, doesn't see it as Jesus even turning her down. She just turns to the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you because she's aware that Jesus is about to do something. So we're told that there's these six stone water jars that are there for the Jewish rites of purification. You've got about 150 gallons of water that are at this wedding because people would wash their hands ceremonially. They would wash the utensils the things that were used to serve the food over the course of seven days. And Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he says, now draw some out, take it to the master of the feast. And so they did. And the master of the feast finds that the water has become wine. He doesn't know any of what's just transpired. The only people who know are the servants and Mary and the disciples and you by virtue of listening in on this story, which is an astounding thing, isn't it? That the first of Jesus's miracles is one that he more or less does in secret. Hardly anybody knows about it. It's something he does behind the scenes subtly. But the water turns in to wine and not just any wine, that the master of the feast says that it's the best wine, that the best has been saved for last. So, John summarizes by saying this, this is the first of Jesus's signs that he did at Cana of Galilee. It manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And this is what I want to kind of hone in on. Why is this the first thing that Jesus does? Like of all of the miracles that Jesus could do, and there's a lot because he's going to do at least seven more in this section of John, including raising people from the dead. The first thing that he does is to behind the scenes without any fanfare, turn water into wine. And he does that first because he's making a point point. and the point goes back to the whole purpose of wine in the first place. It's a sign of blessing. It's a sign of God's favor. And ultimately it's a symbol of joy. This is the first thing that Jesus does as he's introducing himself to the world is to bring about this symbol of joy It's as if he's saying my whole ministry, the purpose of what I'm about to do, everything you're about to see, the purpose is that it should be marked by joy. It should be marked by blessing. It should be marked by excitement. And by extension, what he says is the people who follow me, the people who believe in the gospel, the people who uh, by faith uh, have my righteousness given to them, they should be joyful people. They should be people who've experienced the blessing of God. The purpose of Jesus's ministry is to restore joy. That's why he starts with this. I'm going to be the first to confess to you that I have not been marked by joy in most of my Christian life. I am a pessimist by nature and I'm also not super outwardly expressive. So even when I'm excited Nobody can tell when I'm stressed, everyone can tell, but when I'm excited, nobody has any idea. And yet in starting with turning water into wine, Jesus says something about us that, that we should be in spite of all of the ups and downs of life. We should be people who are marked by joy. I wonder if the same thing can be said of you. Like if you're a Christian in this room, is that what people think about you? Are you someone who follows the God who brings new wine, this source of blessing and joy? Or are you somebody who has your head down and you're constantly grieving? There's a place for that. There's absolutely a place for that. But Jesus doesn't start with that. Jesus starts with joy. And here's what I can't get over is that Jesus's relationship with wine doesn't just end at Cana. But in Luke's gospel, like Lydia read for us, Jesus takes wine out of the wedding and he puts it at the center of his church in the Lord's supper. Something that we do here every week, something that is offered to you every week here at our church. It's as if Jesus says, these people, my people, they will be marked by joy. And so I'm taking this symbol of joy and I'm putting it at the center of their life together so that they would always be reminded of the joy that I bring. Maybe that hasn't been true of you. Maybe you like me have been more pessimistic than rejoicing. Uh, Can I ask you to join me in repenting of that? Uh, Not so that you can spend a whole lot of time being sad about not being happy because that seems somehow backwards. But so that by the spirit's help, we can move towards a faith that doesn't just fast, but a faith that feasts, a faith that rejoices because the son of man begins his ministry at a wedding. And I'll tell you that he ends his ministry at a wedding too that you find in the book of Revelation, the marriage supper of the lamb, when Jesus and his church are together once more.